party where you get together and catch up with your old friends. No, no, Gina. It's about fronting on suckers you went to high school with. You know? Huh? All the people that's put you down. Stole your money. Stole your girl. Tonight, the tables are turned. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today we have an excellent decades-spanning lineup. Amy, what TV trope are we talking about? We are talking about high school reunions. Yes, class reunions. There was a lot to choose from with this one. When we... uh, took to the web, started scaring up some TV episodes about class reunions, there was no uh, shortage. So uh, what are the ones we picked? All right. We started out with the Andy Griffith show going all the way back to the 1960s, 1963, season three, episode 19, class reunion, moved ahead in time to the 1980s, married with children, a double episode, season three, episodes 17 and 18, Married with Prom Queen, and the sequel. And then we went to Martin, season two, Really, Gina's Not My Lover. That's season two, episode two. And rounded it out with 30 Rock, season three, episode five, Reunion. Reunion. So this is a great trope, in my opinion. You know, as fun as it is to talk about the babies being born in the elevators and all of that. A class reunion is like an actual thing that really happens sometimes, and it actually has some real significance. I thought this was a very fun set of shows. Yes, this is something that we've all either avoided or done. That brings me to my question to you. Have you been to a class reunion? No. So based on what you just said, it wasn't that you, your class just didn't have one. You consciously decided to not go. Sure. So there was, well, let's see. We've had a bunch. I think we had a 10, a 15, and a 20. As it so happened, the weekends that they chose were either right after I'd been in town, because I, you know, I don't live in my hometown. So they were either right after I'd been in my hometown, and so I wasn't going to just go back, and the trips didn't line up. Or I was living overseas and it just wasn't feasible. So we're talking about basic logistical issues. This was not a high school rival that you didn't have the courage to face. This was not a lover that you couldn't manage to to see again. This was just scheduling issues. Scheduling issues, but also not trying to make it work. And then I feel also like Facebook and social media has kind of ruined this. There's no, oh, I wonder what they're up to now. Like, I know. So what am I going to do? Go to my class reunion and stand around and be like, so I saw on Facebook you have three kids. Oh, I guess well, I, I guess Facebook you're a teacher. Facebook gets the conversation started. Yeah, I agree. I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, I'm very fortunate to still be in touch with a lot of my friends from high school. 
And, uh, you know, having grown up in a suburb of the city, you know, I always have kind of felt like the city has been sort of a magnet that keeps people fairly close by. Not everybody, of course, but I would say between the fact that so many people I went to high school with stayed in the area geographically, and just like you said, social media takes a lot of the mystery out of it. I think our generation and future ones are not going to have the same intrigue and mystery that class reunions held for uh, our ancestors. I did relate to a lot of what went on in some of these episodes, and we'll talk about it as we go, even if they weren't necessarily high school reunion-based experiences that it was tapping into for me. But let's go back in time. Let's start with Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith, this is February 4th, 1963, class reunion. Andy and Barney are going through uh, Barney's old trunk. Well, they're moving Barney's old trunk. So the Andy Griffith show started out as a backdoor pilot on the Danny Thomas show. And then, and it was a vehicle for Andy Griffith, who was this, uh, you know, well-liked character actor. He was on Broadway and more of like a serious kind of actor, but still doing character roles. And so then he, this was a vehicle for him and he had appeared on the Danny Thomas show before and they wrote this for him to spin off into a show. I find this very interesting because it's only a year or two older than some of the other shows we've watched, right? Right. I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched. It's the same general time period, but it feels like you're watching something from the 1800s. It's like this was Abraham Lincoln's favorite TV show. Okay, so you've mentioned two things that are in a lot of, like, if you read up on the Andy Griffith show, number one, they very purposefully made it feel like the 1930s. It's set in Mayberry, North Carolina. Yeah. Both of the stars are from, you know, I'm the South-ish, right? Like, mm-hmm. Don Knotts is from West Virginia, and Andy Griffith, who plays Andy Taylor on the show, the sheriff, he's from North Carolina, Mount Airy, which is, you know. Yeah, it's your stereotypical small town. It's come to represent that. You know, you talk about Mayberry and Aunt B and everything, and it's a shortcut for small town. It's funny. It's the exact opposite impulse as we had in the 90s with Friends and Mad About You and Seinfeld, where everyone was like, we need to see the lives of urban professionals. We need to be with the hip young people in the big city. You yeah, know, the back- tastemakers. Yeah. Back then it was like, let us watch TV and, you know, and, and go into the lives of these small town folks where everything is simple and, uh, you know, life moves at a leisurely pace. <laughs> and it's just a very different impulse. Yeah. Well, and so the other thing that you mentioned what was the Lincoln-esque sort of like this is Lincoln's favorite TV show, right? So when Andy Griffith first started, when the show, the Andy Griffith show first started, Andy Griffith was playing the sheriff as this very broad kind of local yokel bumpkin-y kind of character. And he realized when he was watching parts of the first season that he was supposed to be the straight man. And so he changed his character completely to what he called and what he described as a more Lincoln-esque type character. And so, yes, there was, it was a, it was a decision from the beginning to make it a throwback show, even though it was 1963 in present time when they were doing this show, they were setting it in 1963, but making it feel like the 1930s. Yes. And that was very much the impression I got. At first, I was like, is this a period piece? No, it's just a laid back, simple, small town 
vibe. And that extends to the sort of structure of the show, you know, because it's basically like a play, you know, the same way when you go to a play and it's like act one, a park bench, act two, a restaurant, you know, the three acts of this show, the three like 10 minute segments are all one scene, one setting. There's no messing around. There's no cutting away. It is Andy and Barney in the garage or wherever they are for the full first third of this show. And it's it's quiet and long and it's nice. Uh, yeah. And and I was noticing similarly that it had just sort of a straight arrow through this show pointing all the way to the end where they were going to, you know, have the reunion and they were going to meet up with this girl that he had liked and that he mentioned when they were looking at the yearbook. And then the end was going to be, you know, will they, won't they? But it was, it was, I mean, you, you could yes. see it was a very straight path. This is when they were you know, Im- imagining these tropes for the first time ever. They didn't yes. need to do anything yeah, different. No frills. And they also didn't feel the need to service the other characters. There is no Opie whatsoever. There's no Aunt B. This is purely a Andy and Barney story. So to outline the story really simply, they're sort of reminiscing at the beginning. Yeah. They're talking about these well, old girlfriends. Yes, but wait. So if you don't know the Andy Griffith show, right? Andy Griffith is the sheriff of mm-hmm. this town in North Carolina, Mayberry. And Barney Fife, played by Don Knotts, is his deputy. Mm-hmm. Andy Griffith is a widower. We find out in that original pilot, the backdoor pilot on Danny Thomas, the show that his wife had died and he has this young son. And so... It's a setup where throughout the series, we can get like, you know, are we going to find Andy a girlfriend? Are we going to oh, sure. find him a wife? So there's there's lots of room to play there. So you can have yeah. like a rotating cast of young, good looking women. It's every woman's fantasy, because this is a time where if he was divorced, that would have a certain connotation. Right. So he still has this saintly, as you said, Lincoln-esque presence, but... He's single and ready to mingle. And he's the town's protector and he's this knight, you know, he's a good dad and all this other stuff. And once he figured out the character that he was like the straight man, then the kind of the show sort of clicked into place. So let's start from the very beginning, a very good place to start. So we have Andy and Barney in a basement or a garage or something because the place where Barney lives or keeps his stuff stored, the landlady has said, you need to get this out because I'm moving something else in. So get rid of your trunk. They're lifting this trunk. The bottom falls out. All of the stuff is spread all over the garage or basement floor and they start going through it. Slapstick 101. We're going to spend five minutes one by one putting everything into the box and then lift the box up and the bottom falls out. Lots of like simple sight gags like that. But yeah, the whole setup is pretty immaterial. All that really ends up mattering is they're reminiscing about their old girlfriends. Barney has, Barney has not, is it Ramona? Ramona um, uh, Wiley. Yeah. Who she, he's like, oh, I bet she never got over me. Right. right. He's, he's just like. They're looking at their yearbook, which is called the Cutlass. And Andy stops cleaning up the mess from the trunk and goes and turns a chair over in the garage so he can sit on it. It had been upside down and sits down and starts going through the yearbook. And he was like, oh, man, you know, my 
someone that he was related to his aunt or something had given them all away or his grandmother had tossed them yeah. out. So he hadn't seen it in years. So he's flipping through. We find out in this episode. So this is 1963. We find out they graduated in 1945, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really smart choice, right? Cause they would have been too young to deal with the draft and the war. So they would have sure. still been in high school when all of that was going on. And so they didn't have to, by choosing 1945, they didn't have to deal with like, Oh, none of the men, who were in our graduating class are coming back for this reunion because half of them are killed in the war. So they're going through the yearbook and they see this Ramona Wiley has written something next to her picture that was like love always or something very amorous and affectionate yeah, towards yeah. Barney. And he, Barney Andy takes asks, it very seriously. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what does he say? She wrote him a note that says the tears on my pillow bespeak the pain in my heart. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we're going to get a recurring motif in a lot of these episodes of a certain phrase that just keeps coming back, uh, you know, when they think of a certain character. But yeah, Barney's got his old flame that he's thinking about. Andy has an old girlfriend that he's nostalgic about. I also made a note that Barney has a rock that he gives a whole little soliloquy about. He says, it was my daddy's rock. Right. I was wondering, when did grown men stop calling their fathers their daddy when they're talking to other grown men? I feel like that is a specific cultural thing. He's talking about his daddy's rock. And then, yeah, they both have these girlfriends. And so they decide, I was not expecting this to be the case. They initiate the reunion. They say, let's have a class reunion. You know, Barney lays it out like, hey, look, we're, you know, we've got a few people in town already. Let's talk to them. It'll spread, you know, in a web-like fashion and uh, we'll get everyone back together. Yeah. They enlist another woman who, I guess, I don't know if she works at the police station or if she just is a classmate of theirs they enlist her and she off camera sends out all the invitations and then brings to the you know sheriff's office this list of everybody who's rsvp'd and the ones that they're still waiting on and so ramona wiley has rsvp'd sharon despain who is andy taylor's you know the sheriff's uh, lady love that he's hoping to rekindle with hasn't responded he says earlier on when they're looking at the yearbook that he last he heard she was living in Chicago doing some designing, some some type of designer in Chicago. But the address that the most recent address that this woman says that she had for her was in Philadelphia. So, you know, she was like, it's OK, Andy. You know, they're really good at forwarding mail now. So she'll get it. You know, she'll get the invitation because he seemed a little downhearted that she hadn't responded yet. I think truth be told, when that was the same sort of thing that happened my that first reunion that I remember my, you know, high school people through, it was the girl who lived across the street from me growing up, Lindsay and her husband, they were high school sweethearts. They got together sort of like a couple days after graduation, but you know, we'd all gone to school together all those years and we were all in theater together. And those two were still living in town and they decided that they would put a committee together with that group of people that still lived in town. And so I just remember getting the Facebook invite to this thing. And it was all of the people that were like in her group of friends that were still living in town. So that tracks. Yeah. And I think this is an aspect that is shared by all of these stories. You need the anticipation, right? You need the scene before the reunion where you're establishing what's at stake and, you know, all of the sort of jitters and uncertainty that's going into it. You know, everyone 
everyone has an agenda. All these different characters we're going to talk about has something that they're trying to prove or someone that they're hoping to see. In Andy's case, it's pretty simple. Uh, he has this old girlfriend. He hopes she's going to come. Yeah. And I have what you're talking about with the anticipation. I have this sort of theory that class reunions are an awful lot like New Year's Eve, mm. right? Like nothing never good ever. Yeah, it never lives up to the hype. Nothing good really ever happens. You always think it's going to be this and this and this. But that's why most of the show has to be in this anticipation of because that's where the excitement is. And then you can do. And the only one that didn't follow that was Married with Children because they did that double episode. So they spend a good bit of time at the reunion because they got to the reunion yeah. well, in the first episode. We do get a fair amount of reunion action in this one. So when we get there, there's a lot of humor, a lot of story stuff surrounding whether or not you remember people, right? And wow. uh, Yeah. And I was so surprised because in not a single one of these shows, was there the name tag table? Nobody put on name tags yeah. where that's like a standard thing at reunions that I would think about is that you, you know, like in movies, they always have the table have with the name movies. tag. Yeah. So, but here there were, in, like you said, in mo many of the shows, there was that joke of like not remembering who people were. And, and I'm like, solves the problem when they pick up their name tag as they come in. Yeah, that's funny. They didn't think of that. So there's a lot of Andy and Barney kind of whispering to each other, figuring out who people are. They decide, you know, we need to just come clean and be honest. And the next guy who comes over that we don't recognize, we're just going to tell him. And they do. And he's like, well, of course you don't recognize me. I'm, you know, I'm somebody's husband. Ramona Wiley's husband. There you go. So Barney is shocked and, uh, you know, just sort of astonished at the fact that this Ramona Wiley person has not been pining for him for the last 20 years, but is uh, happily married. Yes. So he, I mean, we find out in that earlier scene that she has RSVP'd as Mrs. So-and-so. So he we already knew she was married, which he, uh, you know, indicated his surprise there. And then he was saying, oh, you know, I feel bad for that guy because she's going to show up and be all over me. And right. that's going to be, I hope he, you know, I hope he's not a violent, the violent Violent type or something. Yeah, his confidence is not at all shaken by the fact that she's married. Yes. And then he meets the hubby and, you know, totally normal guy. And then Ramona walks over and he is just standing there in anticipation and she doesn't remember yeah, him. She doesn't remember him. I haven't watched a lot of Andy Griffith, but I can imagine this sort of dynamic was probably pretty common for Barney, right? A lot of uh, chutzpah going in and then kind of falls on his face. Um, <laughs> well, and so he requotes that line, the, you know, the tears on my pillow bespeak my, my, the pain in my heart or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she looks at him like he's a crazy person. And he's like, you know, we were in social studies 1A together. What do you mean? You know, like yeah. on and on. And his, her husband just sort of is like, well, we're going to go dance now yeah. and like ushers her they away. They have to walk away awkwardly. Now, eventually Andy's uh, former girlfriend does show up. And what I wrote was they start dancing. People watch them like it's the first dance at a wedding reception. It is like silence in this event space. All eyes are on Andy and what's her name? Sharon Despain. All eyes are on Andy and Sharon Despain uh, just doing this little dance in the middle of the room. And it's like flame instantly rekindled. Yes. Well, so they were voted um, best couple junior and senior year. So mm -hmm. everyone was rooting for them back in the day. And then she went off 
you know, to live in big cities and be a designer. And he stayed local and ended up marrying someone else that we never met. And so I think the downfall of the best couple two years running would be something that would be interesting, you yeah. know, to to those who were coming to the class reunion. And she gets that entrance, though, where the whole party stops when she walks through the door. So it's like they've all been waiting just like Andy for this, you know, is this woman going to show up? Is, is this going to happen? So I yeah. thought that was kind of interesting. The other thing that has happened in this same time at the punch table was we find out and maybe we in earlier episodes, but for us, you and I, we got to find out that this was a dry county. Yeah. Because somebody asks if the punch was spiked, and Andy, sort of with a little twinkle in his eye, is like, Well, if it is, I don't know about it because I'm the sheriff. And I was like, Oh, North Carolina, it's a dry county. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, I think for a lot of people, that would be pretty rough in a class reunion situation. Um, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. That's uh, that would be a deal breaker, I think, for many people these days. Uh, oh, by the way, it's in Maycomb, Alabama, or wherever this takes place, and there's no alcohol. There's allowed. no alcohol. So they're dancing and rekindled immediately, like you said. Mm -hmm. I wrote this quote down too. Unless maybe I heard this wrong, because it's an odd thing to say. When Barney is watching them with this sort of starry-eyed look, he says. One of the great natural romances of all time. Yes. He says that a couple times throughout the episode. Natural, like, uh, like, because he's not banging a animal? Like, what is, what is, because it springs from just, like, there was no, uh, they just instantly care about each other. They, okay. you know what I mean? I thought they, that was an odd way to phrase it. I, 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 I agree. I think it's a little strange, but like, you knew exactly what he meant in that moment. It was like this, there's nothing that can, the only thing keeping these two people apart is their own choices, right? Or are their own choices because they, they just, they love each other. I mean, yeah. it's so apparent just from the way they interact. Well, so let's get to, you know, how the story plays out. They do have this instant attraction again. They dance, they go for a little walk on the balcony or whatever. They sit down and uh, start talking and cuddling. They kiss. Yeah, they're uh, reminiscing. They're mm -hmm. they're doing that thing of, oh, didn't we do this at graduation? Yeah. Didn't we do this same thing? And right. didn't I go? Didn't we go for a little walk? And didn't I yeah. say, oh, are you getting cold? And mm -hmm. I did that so I could put my arm around you. And and then didn't it go something like this? Yeah. And then they kiss. And so they're having this like, remember when? Remember when? Remember when? And then they're sitting there happily, and they're like, why? Why did this end? Why? Right. We and then, had a fight, right. but we don't quite remember what it was about. But then we talk for a little longer, and it sort of comes out they had very different plans for their lives. Right. She is, you know, I want to be a big fish in a big pond. I want to live in these places where there's lots of um, wonder and excitement and something new every day, and I can I can work and strive and achieve these like huge great heights and he's like yeah but you can do that here and she's like yeah but that's big fish small pond and it's different uh you know i want variety and he's like okay but i'm happy here like yeah. you can you know and so they both are sort of saying happiness can be found in both places 
And that was where, and I think in a modern show, right, this would be where then there would be like an argument or some sort of, you know, like left versus right kind of thing. We would definitely take a political turn. And this didn't go there. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't the way in the time. It was very much just like, okay, well, we care very much about each other, but we're going in, we're going in two different directions. Yeah. They're, uh, as much as their rapport is, is very, you know, pleasant. They're also very forthright and clear that they want different things. And there's this sort of fundamental difference where she says, like, I cannot be happy here. And I don't relate to this idea that you wouldn't want to move past this. And he says also very clearly, I just don't feel that way. I don't have curiosity about what it's like to live somewhere else. I like it here where I am. And I don't relate to your desire to, you know, travel the world. And so it's left in this sort of dangling like, well, I I guess that's why it didn't work out. Yeah. And why don't we let's just enjoy this time and have a nice night together. So what I thought was really interesting about this, right, is that First of all, that conversation, uh, both sides of that conversation happen without any judgment, which very rarely exists in the modern day. (laughs) Like Jay grew up uh, around in and around New York City um, in the suburbs. I grew up in the South. And so there's like I definitely have lots of people that I know that this is their story. They don't see any reason to to leave. They're happy. They have everything they want. Their friends are there. Their family's there. They have, you know, upward mobility. They can have a nice house. They've got all the things. And I was the person like Sharon who was like, no, I want to go here. I want to do this. I want to travel the world. I want to, you know, live overseas. I want to live in New York City. You know, I that's all like I, so I have had conversations like this within that same dynamic. And there always is, like there always ends up being some sort of sneaky kind of judgment. It's strange how much that kind of permeates the conversation. The minute I say, oh, I'm living in Amsterdam, I'm just home for the holidays, or oh, yeah, no, I live in New York City, I'm just back for this wedding or whatever. Like immediately, I feel like they're worried I'm going to judge them because I'm this person who's gone to big cities yeah. and they've stayed there. Yeah, that's part of it. And I think it's uh, it's just very hard sometimes to relate to other people's ideas of success. I remember, you know, I was kind of in the same boat when I was younger and people would tell me that they preferred not living in the city, that they preferred the suburbs to the city. I would basically not believe them. Like I would say like, yeah, keep telling yourself that, you know, because I just didn't You know, in my mind, the city was where it's at. The suburbs was a more boring, uh, like just sort of crappier version of that. And so, yeah, when people said that they preferred that, it just wasn't something I could relate to. You know, I don't really feel that way anymore, but I absolutely understand how those differences can be irreconcilable. And that conflict uh, was really relatable. Yeah, totally a relatable conflict. And I just really loved the way that it was handled. It was so we, we really care about each other. We're not on the same page, so we won't end up together, but let's just enjoy this time that we have together. And, you know, we're not in the, in the time of casual sex. So it's not like they're going to mess with each other's heads by, you know, going off and having a night together. Or if they did decide to do that, yeah, it maybe, was maybe like they they're both, just discreet about right? it. That's off camera. 
it's true. It could happen, but you know what I mean? There, whatever it is, it's, it's, they both decided that they're going to enjoy this time and then that's going to be the end of it. And what I thought was also interesting about this is that this is the plot point of every Hallmark movie, mm. right? Like the girl from the big city goes back to her hometown and she rekindles with the guy. And then she's like, Oh, I don't need this big job. I'm going to, yeah. you know, move back to the hometown or they flip it on its head and they're like, Oh, just kidding. He's going to give up his, you know, store and come do everything online and live in the big city, which is always the thing that people make fun of Hallmark movies about is that that's not realistic. Why don't they have these real conversations like these two characters did in 1963? Right. Andy Griffith show might not be realistic in all ways, but it is kind of realistic that they go their separate ways and live to fight another day and meet some other person and life goes on. And life goes on. Okay. Let's move on to Married with Children. Married with Children. This is a two-episode arc, Married with Prom Queen Part 1 and Married with Prom Queen, the sequel, aired in April 1989. This is Season 3, Episodes 17 and 18. Yeah, I was really curious about this one going in. I watched Married with Children as a kid. Uh, I think it was on the Fox Sunday nights with Herman's Head for a while. My friends were into it. It had that sort of mean-spirited, raucous attitude, or that's how I remembered it. I was very curious going in, like, what what is this going to be? Like, is this going to be so cringy and mean-spirited and, you know, just sort of dated and hard to sit through? You know, what's it going to be like? Were you into Married with Children back in the early 90s, late 80s? So this was one of the shows that I was not allowed to watch. This was like in Living Color and Herman's Head and The Simpsons, all of those. All of Fox. Yes. My parents were like, nope, absolutely not. You're not watching anything that's on there. Interestingly, this is kind of the middle-ish of season three. And it was a few episodes before this was the episode called uh, Her Cup Runneth Over where Al Bundy and and Peg go bra shopping, that that is what the guy who started or the, the person who started the um, all the campaigns against the show, like morality police kind of a thing. It was because of that episode. It was like there was a an older man in the bra shop, like wearing a bra and garters. And there was a like a homosexual who had on a tiara and was like talking, you know, so all of these reasons, the, you know, moral police were up in arms. And that's what started the campaign against the show. And so season three, the popularity went through the roof because of that media attention that those controversies were getting. So this is kind of right as the show started picking up viewership and would be being talked about in the kid circles that we ran in when we were in, you know, middle school and stuff in 1989. I was in elementary school, I guess. But and so that, you know, that tracks that you had heard about it in this way of like, oh, it's kind of raunchy and naughty. So I want to watch it so we can laugh at the, you know, sex jokes and mean jokes and the stuff with the kids. So this was on the do not watch list. And in years since when I've gone to watch it, I don't like it. Yeah, that's not surprising. Like I said, it's not something that I think in the year 2023, a lot of people are necessarily rushing to experience. Um, but I did have a lot of curiosity. I think it's apparent as we get into it, even though it's season three already, 
we still haven't achieved maximum married with children audience frenzy, you know, yeah. because characters are entering and not getting gigantic earth shattering ovations and applause and screaming the way they would in the later seasons. But we're still getting reactions. Uh, and the episode begins with what will be the sort of running story for the kids. Bud and Kelly are starving because their parents don't bother to feed them. Which Hilarious. No, see, and it just it immediately like does that thing in my stomach that's like, that is not funny. Like, this is horrible parenting. And these kids are messed up. And this is awful. And they make this joke out of it. And then mom comes home, Peg comes home, and she's like, oh, I... Uh, you know, I spent $500 on a dress, so we can't afford food. And oh, by the way, I got myself Burger King on the way home. Um, sorry, you're going to have to figure something out. Go scrounge in the freezer, which is completely frozen over. And then Bud digs in there and finds his old goldfish that died years and years ago because they didn't feed it. And then for some reason, they put it in the freezer. I mean, it the whole thing was sad. And at that point, I was like, we have a we have two episodes of this to watch. And this is the very beginning. And I was like, I need to shake myself out of this, like, I hate this mentality, yeah. or I'm going to be miserable for the next 45 minutes while we watch these two episodes. So I kind of just said, all right, we're leaning in, we're going to watch Martin next. And I love Martin. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to have some good comedy in a few minutes. And I just kind of leaned in. And when I just let it go, Parts of it did get funny. You know, Katie Seagal is an amazing actress. Al Bundy's doing the face pulling thing that we saw Archie Bunker do. So I, I have a feeling he was trying to do that, you know, definitely leaning into that as like a an homage to Carol O'Connor. He's fun. I, I like him. I think Al Bundy, you know, we've been talking in some of these 80s shows about how a lot of the leading men went that sort of nebbishy way and you get the Harry Andersons and the, uh, I don't know, you you have a lot of these little nebbishy squirrely guys and then you've still got the sort of tough guy lugheads. Al Bundy is just a fun, I think it's a fun performance. I think it's a fun character, you know, to a point. I wrote down one of his quotes that made me laugh. He goes, I rule this house. I pay for it. I rot within its walls. I make the decisions, you know, like this idea that he just is resigned to hating his life. And it's all he ever talks about is just how miserable he is in a way that like he almost gets this twinkle in his eye when he comes up with a fun way to say how much he loathes his own existence. Yes. And okay, so you watched the show, obviously, much more than I did. It, do we ever get like those heartwarming moments when we realize why the two of them are together? Because she is, and this is the thing that sort of drives me crazy about their characters is that they're both two things, right? Like his whole world was that he was this football star and he was going to go on and then he ended up hooking up with Peg and she sucked the life out of him and now he's stuck in this marriage, right? And and as a shoe salesman and trying to raise these kids and he's stuck and he loathes it and he like, you know. And then she is like, all I want is for you to be make more money, be more successful. And he's like, you're the reason I'm not. And she's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, no, that's his narrative. I think the idea is they are all portraits of tackiness 
and failure and American excess. And so I think Al Bundy is a guy who peaked in high school because he's a guy who peaked in high school. He explains it as, no, I could have gone on to great things if it wasn't for Peg. But I think we're supposed to understand like, no, he's a schmuck. She's a tacky, you know, whatever she is. And they just kind of deserve each other. Yeah. She's very selfish, right? Like Selfish, shallow. She doesn't want him to be successful for his sake. She wants it for, for status. Right. Uh, and, and so she can have more money to go buy things. Right. And so to answer your question of, did they ever sort of balance that with the sort of uplifting aspect of their relationship? I feel like the way they would do that is to sort of meet each other at the bottom, you know, where it'd be like an episode might resolve with they found out a way to steal from somebody or something or some, some, you know, the idea that they're, they're bonding because they're both sort of shitty or superficial or something. So kind of like the way this ends where, you know, Peg enlists Al to go cause a distraction in yes. the parking lot so she can fix the ballot or, you yes. know, stuff the ballot box or whatever so she can win Reunion Queen. Yeah. I think you had that same idea in the early 90s that it would just be funny to have a family of schmucks. And when you do have the moments of love and of connection, it's by way of something that still sort of makes us turn up our noses at them. That's how they connect. Yeah. So the B plot in this two episode arc is the thing that we start with, which is they're start, the kids are starving. And so we don't see a lot of them, but we, we get that plot coming back in when they realize that their parents are at a high school reunion. And what do they have there? Food. So they do research on the sixties so they can show up to this class reunion, to their parents class reunion that uh, where they ostensibly graduated in the sixties. They show up dressed as hippies. This is hilarious. I mean, I yeah, I, we're, we're jumping to the end on this one, but it is very funny how their solution of how to be inconspicuous at the reunion is to be two teenagers dressed like hippies when everyone else are adults dressed like modern people. Right. Like they just make themselves as conspicuous as possible. But then when they show up, nobody seems to mind. They, they Maybe they just think it's sort of, you know, some actors that they've yes. hired to be look like they looked when High they were young. It's not a maximum security thing. If a kid walks in and, you know, starts eating spaghetti, no one's going to bother him. So yeah, they're quoting Bob Dylan and and all of this, and they yeah you know, they look right out of Woodstock. Yeah. But let's get to the main story of this is of course the reunion, and like we said, uh, you need to sort of set the table with what are we anticipating, what are the unresolved rivalries and issues that we've got from high school that we have to face. Right. So we find out that they are high school sweethearts of a kind, right? Like they sort of lived their high school lives separately. Al was this, you know, swinging football player and was great with the ladies and was going to go on to greatness. And then shortly after graduation, hooked up with Peg. Peg was uh, very similar, I guess, to her daughter in that she was kind of a, you know, 
easy girl in high school. And she has a rivalry with another girl named Connie Bender. Bring a friend, it won't offend her, was like the joke about her. Peggy's maiden name was Wanker, so it was no need to thank her. So they both have their own slut-shaming nicknames. Yes. And so they have this rivalry. They both want to be a reunion queen. And Peg really wants to go to the reunion because she didn't get to go to prom because Al didn't take her to prom because he wanted to have sex instead. So he doesn't want to go because he's made nothing of himself. You know, he's not interested in that. And Peg really wants to go. And then she sort of slowly convinces him. And the thing that gets him in the end is that he remembers that he was this big man on campus. So maybe there'll be people there who want to flirt with him and he can get away from her. And that he has a rivalry with this guy, Jack. Yes. So they both have their own separate rivalries that they're hoping to resolve. Peg has a very specific sort of ruse that she wants Al to go along with in terms of what his current status is. Uh, So I, I wrote down Peg's fantasy life that she wants to brag about to all of her former classmates is that she's married to a garbage man. They have sex five times a week and they don't have any kids. Those are her requests. That is her. That's like her dream life. To clarify something else for me, what is this thing about Al never wanting to have sex, Peg wanting to have sex all the time? He's always like, oh, she's forcing me into it. And she's like, come on, honey. That was definitely part of the dynamic. And to be honest, I didn't totally understand it as a kid. I don't totally understand it now. But I think that's just part of the Al Bundy thing is having sex with my wife is like this traumatic experience. And he's always making these little jabs about like, I've been blind since the last time we fooled around or something. Because she's very attractive. Yeah, I don't get it. I I honestly don't get it. But that is part of their whole deal is that she is horny and he is not. And so maybe this sort of ties in with the whole, like, you've ruined my life. You've kind of made me impotent kind of a thing. Like, I I didn't go on to greatness. I got stuck with you. And now I'm just not interested in anything. That's part of it. I also think it's just maybe this sort of like laziness and detached, you know, quality to him that he's just like, I don't, anything that resembles effort, I don't want to do that. He's clinically depressed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so they both are like, have this reason now to go to the reunion. They, they're going to go. Peg goes out and spends even more money on shoes. We get just a quick little appearance from the neighbor characters. And this is before Ted McGinley is on the show. Yeah, so this is Stephen Marcy, Marcy Darcy. Yeah. I feel like with their scene was where I thought, at least in this initial episode, that was where the mean humor was actually the most on display, I think, because their take on the class reunion is we love going to those because we can laugh at the failures of all of our former classmates. And they do this thing. They they talk about someone being a toe tu- 
tow truck driver and laugh at that, which is a pretty lucrative job, I would imagine. And it just immediately brought me back to that 90s thing of, oh, the only thing you're going to need to know how to say is, do you want fries with that? Right. You know, this idea that the worst thing that could ever happen to you was having a blue collar hourly wage job. And I just have to scratch my head. Like, who do they think is watching this show? Like, it's all college professors and freaking like captains of industry that are watching Married with Children. No, I think the point was that you were meant to dislike them. But anyway, so we've got their motivations. We've got the anticipation. We're all set. We're at the reunion and we meet our rivals. We meet Uh, our rivals. They have more mean humor. We also find out during this little back and forth with Connie that Connie is married to Jack. Al's rival. And Jack walks in in a very nice suit, acting like he's been all successful, but immediately is like, hey, Al, remember that fight we didn't have because you didn't show up? We're going to have that fight tonight. Like, why would he even care? You know, except for that they're all like, even this other couple who acts like they're so well off or whatever, they're also posturing. We find out that Peg spent $2,000 on a phone bill to make long distance calls to all of these people who were coming to graduation to beg them for their vote for reunion queen time out reunion queen (laughs) does such a title exist and and why yeah that that's it one part question does such a title exist answer no right Uh, definitely not if there's a queen there's got to be a king well Uh, and they said you know when you know we already said peg she stuffs the ballot box so she ends up winning but they say when they put the crown on her oh now she's gonna go dance with her king and it's just her husband like so there's no actual election is the king. king yeah yeah it's such a bizarre story device but yeah there is this election going on for the not the prom queen the reunion queen and so i guess that provides this very sort of clear objective metric by which peggy can vanquish connie right but i loved how after we get this long protracted exchange of insults between connie and peggy when jack the husband shows up, Al and Jack are just immediately like they look at each other. Al goes, you're looking good, Jack. Jack goes, you too, Al. And he says, you want to go outside? And that's it. Just immediately like it comes to blows. We're going to fight. This is what we're going to do. One of Peg's other stipulations, in addition to her, you're a garbage man. We don't have kids. We have sex five times a week. One of her other stipulations is you can't go hang out with your other friends, with your old friends, Mm -hmm. particularly this what's like Elliot or something, Eli oh, yeah, or whatever, Eli. who guest star um, Squiggy from Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. All right. I thought his freaky demeanor looked familiar. And he is this kind of friend who just bets him to do stupid, bets Al to do stupid stuff. So it's like, hey, I bet you can't, you know, eat this chip that's covered in yeah. all this dirt. And I bet you can't this. And I bet you can't put that nail through the table with your head. And, and so the reason that Al couldn't make it to the fight originally was that this Eli guy, whatever this guy, Squiggy, um, had bet him that he couldn't jump over a Mustang doing 50 miles an hour. And a- apparently, a high school owl got close. His toe clipped the driver's head. So I guess it was a convertible Mustang. Clipped the driver's head as he leapt over this Mustang and he ended up getting hurt and so couldn't get into this fight. 
So yeah, that's how we sort of get this reversal, the sort of changing of the tides where Peggy is kind of coming up short in this middle part where everyone's kind of siding with Connie. But meanwhile, Al has discovered this table of his old friends and uh, he's like right back in the saddle and everyone's liking him. And uh, he's like, I'm really glad we came. Yeah, he's having a good time and Peggy is not. It turns out that Connie has called China and there were four, three or four exchange students that had gone to their school. She flew them in in order to get their votes. And we have some Asian women in, in like what looked like traditional kimonos, which aren't necessarily Chinese, they're Japanese. So that was an interesting moment in uh, racial that the unawareness. The cultural sensitivity of married with children was not thoroughly vetted and researched. I, I am saying that yes. Um, so we had this moment with uh, with the these women um, who are the exchange students, and then they go off, and then Peg goes on a campaign. She's going around from table to table trying to make sure that she can shore up the votes because she realizes she's like three votes down or something. Yeah. So she goes to another table, and all of the women are like, "Yeah, we're not voting for you. You slept with my boyfriend in in high school." Yeah, so she's sort of spiraling, uh, you know, like her chances of winning this absurd uh, reunion queen title are getting farther and farther away, but Al is living it up. And then our storylines converge because Al and Jack go to have their fight outside. Basically, everyone in the reunion goes with them to watch this fight, but the kids... Bud and Kelly are there in their, you know, hippie Halloween costumes. Right. And uh, Peg asks them, can you pick the lock on this ballot box? And they say, sure, that is part of our skill set. Yes. Well, so we're solidly now in the second episode. The, I think the end of the first episode was just a freeze frame on Peg's face when she realizes that she is not going to be able to get enough votes. And that's the cliffhanger. Oh, I'm sure everyone was talking about that at the water cooler. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but so it was very like anticlimactic. But then in the second episode, that's when Peg goes over. She sort of dejectedly sits at the table with Al and is just kind of bummed out and listening to him living it up with his friends. And she gets an idea that, hey, I can convince Al, like, hey, Al, go have your fight. Because she told him he couldn't, so he wasn't going to do it. But then she was like, you can go have your fight. And he's like, yes. So now he's going to go create this distraction. That's when Peg sees the kids for the first time. And we get this lovely moment where Christina Applegate is good at something. Yeah. Not only is she good at something, we also get the two of them cooperating. Yes. Uh, where they go to the ballot box. And it's like, you know, tweezers. Yeah, exactly. He's he's asking her for the utensils as though he's like Graphite. a doctor doing surgery. They have all the terminology down like, oh, this is just a three ball double tumbler lock. That won't be an issue. And so it's just this really fun break from their usual dynamic. Okay, Peg goes, have you guys done this before? Yeah. And they're like, no. And so uh, their plan works. Their plan works. She is able to remove enough of the other ladies' ballots or stuff them or whatever. And then we get the scene where they're going to announce the um, reunion queen up on stage. So this is another one of those stories that kind of ends in that way of like, I guess they all deserve each other in a weird way. They're 
victorious. Al wins his fight. Jack comes back in and falls down on the floor unconscious. And, you know, Al has won everybody's, they don't carry him on their shoulders exactly, but he's, they're all cheering him on. Peggy wins the title, right? And so she wins and then they dance and he's like, no, Peg, I'm really hurt. Uh, No, I think we should go to the hospital. And she's like, you're fine. Oh, and maybe we can get a little frisky tonight. What's that in your pocket? And he's like, that's my rib. (laughs) And so I guess we're sort of supposed to take this other couple is basically a mirror image of them, right? Like the other lady is kind of tacky the way that Peg is. The other guy is kind of a big dummy the way that Al is. So there's nothing really to be taken other than like, you know, our our team, the Bundys, they they went and they won. So we're happy. And thinking back on maybe, you know, my sort of apathy around making reunions happen, right? Like if this is what's to be expected, if it's all these people that were losers in high school, or I guess they were cool in high school, but now they're losers, like who, that's just sad. Who wants to go see that? Yeah. And in terms of the overall sort of ethos of the show, of course, you know, I wasn't totally off base to go into it and think it was going to be kind of mean and unpleasant, but it wasn't as bad as I had remembered. Um, So I guess it's all sort of relative to your expectations. Yeah, well, and I think same for me, this one seemed rather or these two seemed rather tame in terms of just the raunchiness. They they didn't seem to have as much of the raunchiness that I remember. There was only one joke about Kelly being a prostitute, you know, where I sort of remember any of those episodes that have more to do with the kids. It's all about her you know, being sexed up and all about Bud, like wanting to have sex. And so because we didn't, they weren't at the center of this episode, we didn't see a lot of that. That's true. And to her credit, after the show, Christina Applegate made this real sort of decisive move to never play parts like that again. And you see that even in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, she's like totally different than this character. And you could tell that she was just like, you know, even if I don't have the most amazing career in Hollywood, I'm not going to keep this going. I'm not going to be this bimbo character ever. Yeah. Samantha Who, one of one of the greatest sort of short run sitcoms that the, it was it's sort of like 13 going on 30. That's mm-hmm. the story of Samantha Who. If you haven't watched it, I think it's like three seasons or something. Go watch it. It's a gr- I loved that show. Yeah, it Dead was to really- Me on Netflix is really good. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. But um, okay, so much for Married with Children. Shall we talk Martin? Martin, season two, episode two, really, Gina is not my lover. So were you a Martin gal in the 90s? Yes. Um, I think Living Single and Martin were once the tide turned and my parents allowed Fox viewing in my <laughs> In my house. Glorious day. Uh, yes. These were, this was one of the shows that I got into. Um, I really liked Living Single and I really liked Martin. I loved the In Living Color, like the two snaps in a circle, like the men on film where they were doing yeah. that. So then when you had, was it Shanene that um, Martin did was, I was such a sucker for that stuff. I thought well, that was okay. hilarious. Yeah. I have some thoughts about Shanene, but before we get there, I just, just want to say that I was a Martin guy too. I really liked House Party, the movie. House Party came out in 1990, I think. Uh, that's this really fun sort of early 90s hip hop comedy with Kid and Play. And 
the sort of third and fourth characters in that movie are Martin Lawrence and Tisha Campbell. So I was just sort of familiar with them when they made this show. And yeah, I remember liking it. I feel like for whatever reason, I didn't have that relationship with it where it was always on, you know, over the years. So it got sort of lost in my memory banks a little. Yeah, I think, well, it probably would have made it to syndication when we were later in high school and not watching as much yeah, after that's school. True. All right. So you mentioned Shanene. I'm going to say I loved this episode overall. This first scene made me a little nervous. Yes. Uh, and you also mentioned the Jamie Foxx thing. And that's what immediately occurred to me is like, this was definitely a thing in the early nineties, black guys doing drag, like not just drag, but these sort of, I'll use the word grotesque, uh, right. these weird, you know, you look up Jamie Foxx, Wanda. The first thing that pops up is this cross-eyed, uh, weird pucker-mouthed face he's doing. Like it's it's just so bizarre. Yeah. And you know, I guess we we were a few years away from Medea, yes. but you know, there's guys in drag was all over the place. You know, you look at any episode of the state or kids in the hall or anything, it, it you know knows no racial or ethnic boundaries. But I feel like this was a certain thing the jamie fox martin lawrence thing which they have you know in years since received an awful lot of criticism about because not only is it problematic on the you know they're straight men doing these stereotypes as either gay or you know trans and then also they are putting down black women all of these characters have very strong opinions and you know they are they're always you know taking their nails off and trying to get in a fight or like you know whipping their hair they always have some insult and it always has something to do with um, the culture that they're like insulting other people about and so yeah there's just a lot of a lot of it didn't age well i too when i was like you know i had this sort of conflict within me because i remembered my middle school self really thinking that it was very funny and laughing at it. And so I was kind of like, oh man, I can't, I hope Shanae is in this episode. I want to see just a little bit of it. And then we started the episode with it and I was like, oh God, yeah, this I, isn't good. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're exactly right. Talking about the intersectionality of people that this is problematic for, because I'm watching it going like, I honestly don't know exactly who this is offensive too, but I just have that feeling like this is not good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But thankfully, it is only a little bit of Shanene. And after that first scene, you know, first scene is Tisha Campbell, uh, her character Gina and her friend have a little encounter with Shanene. We get our taste of that. And then after that, we're in the apartment. We get Gina and Martin. And this got me thinking... Is this the first show we've talked about that's a couple, right? That's not a family. That's not a workplace. It's not a, a group of friends. This is a different vibe. This is the mad about you. This is the, you know, that that thing where it's just a man and a woman living together and they're issues and it's it's a different uh feel yeah a couple with no kids right. and then you know the maybe the ancillary characters like pam and um, martin's friends who come in who come in and out yeah i i think you might be right and and it was nice this is season two and they have a history of acting together right so the the timing is wonderful tisha campbell 
I could watch her in anything. She yeah. is, she's, she knows how to do the physical comedy. We get brilliance from her later on and all of like the physical faces and everything and the, and the body that she, that she's doing. She's, she really like, this is a home run for her. And then this is another example of that, you know, comedian gets his own show kind of thing. So you can tell she is meant to be the straight man to, you know, Martin Lawrence and he is just yucking it up doing, you know, we, we see them, uh, Martin is doing push-ups and like counting and doing all this workout stuff and being very, you know, uh, exuberant and, and energetic. And she, you know, Teacher Campbell comes out, Gina comes out from the bedroom with her coffee and is like, you know, it's morning and she's in a robe and he's been up for hours. She's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I, I got to get ready for this reunion. It's my reunion. I'm going to win. Man of the decade. So we have another goal award. Yes. Same, same story. Like Martin has basically the same scenario and the same motivation as Peg. His energy is great. She's great. You're right that she's the straight man, but there is this sort of joy to, to their dynamic. And, you know, when she gets annoyed with him, it's only sort of momentary and he gets her laughing again. And you're right that later on, we're really going to get to see that she has not at all been saddled with the boring spouse part to play. But yeah, for now, we're getting mostly Martin doing his thing. He has this wild energy. He starts talking about the reunion and we get the first instance of this recurring thing where he talks about this guy. He starts talking about Ricky Fontaine and he gets this kind of faraway look in his eye and he kind of jerks his head to the side and he says, pretty Ricky's what they called him. And he just has that, yeah, kind of wild, like semi-psychotic energy that I had really forgotten about. And I was like, oh yeah, this is like, you're, you're seeing the influence of the Jim Carrey era of comedy. Everything's a little cranked up, but it's definitely his distinct version of that. And it's fun. Like he's, he's really funny. Yeah. I, I would liken his sort of energy to um, Kevin Hart. They have, yeah. that's kind of a, like a similar sort of like very amped up energy. And, and Martin has this backstory in, from school where he was not cool. You know, he got, um, fronted on many times and mm. was sort of the butt of jokes, you know, and, uh, made fun of. And, uh, he knows that he is now successful. Right. So he is this, you know, number one DJ in Detroit. He's got this radio show that's super popular and he's, you know, a, a celebrity in, in town and is going to go back to the reunion and be like, look, I made something of myself and all those guys who hated on me, I'm going to show them what for. Yes. And pretty Ricky being one of them, but he makes a list. He has a little reporter's notepad yes, he that he's a memo pad, like ticking names off the payback list right that he and once he gets the reunion is like going up and having these exchanges with people where he gets one over on them because of his success and then also puts them down and then yeah. now he can cross them off the list right so we get a different dynamic here because Martin doesn't have to invent uh, fake success. He doesn't have to pretend to be a garbage man that sleeps with his, with his wife five times a week. Yeah, he is a relatively successful person. He's supposed to go with Gina, but uh, she can't go. 
she can't go. And this is where the premise of this episode gets problematic, right? So they're having their coffee. He's got all this manic energy. Uh, He tells her that she needs to go to the dentist to get her teeth whitened because she drinks too much coffee. He tells her that in order for her to be ready to be the man of the decades, woman at this reunion she he's like i have a day of beauty planned for you yeah um so she's gonna go get like a real pedicure and manicure because sure. he messed up her nails last time he did it for her and he, she's gonna get a facial and she's got so he's planned a spa day for her which is very nice but the way he pitches it is very much like you've got to look your best so that i can and oh, yeah. she she doesn't have you know she kind of laughs at you know she she's just appreciative of the spa day but it just it rings in my ear with a little bit of that misogyny that i that i don't like and then also knowing that you know tisha campbell left the show the last season and sued martin lawrence for sexual harassment that all sucks but i would say about the the storyline i think it's very much the show is going to show you you know that's his foible for making her do that and for thinking and for thinking that way and that's what's going to lead to the, you know, comically disastrous results at the end. But so what makes it that she can't go? So she gets a facial, an avocado mask. Right. And but she's, she's allergic. allergic to avocado. And so she has all of this, like she comes home and has all these sort of red bumps all over her face because she's had an allergic reaction. And while at the dentist, the dentist was like, oh, hey, while I'm in here, why don't I fill that cavity and hit a nerve with the Novocaine and or something. And so she's got this big swollen part of her face and she can't really talk because she's all numb. So she's drooling. So she looks a mess. Like she comes home from her spa day. Her face is all you know red and blotchy from this allergic reaction she's got the one side of her face is all puffed up because Mm -hmm. of where they did this dental work and there's stuff in there now and she's drooling everywhere and she um they gave her some other medicine because of all of the that and so she's loopy the dentist prescribed some pain meds that she didn't take because she wanted to be able to go to the reunion and she comes to the door and we see this face. I mean, it's comical, you know, yeah. all of this stuff going on. And then Martin Lawrence turns to camera and is like, you know, like, oh, she's such a dog. What am I going to do? Yeah. He tries to be nice about it and is like, oh, no, you should go to sleep. You should take those pills and go to sleep. Like, you don't have to go. I'll go by myself. It's okay. And then she goes off and he's like, thank yeah. goodness. So he goes stag to the reunion. And yeah, we have a very similar kind of situation as the married with children thing where he's, his payback is basically just insulting people. He, he's dissing. Right. Like he gets a zinger in on them. And also he like talks about his show being, you know, number one and then. So it's very funny. He's walking around with this sort of hunched posture with his little memo pad. He's going up to somebody going, you know, your mom sucks eggs and crossing their name off the list. Uh, He usually tries to kind of uh, trick them into, you know, sort of ease them into a little bit of a conversation so he can really get a good zinger in. Um, And, you know, those are well done. And then Pretty Ricky arrives. Right. And then we have a whole your mama back and forth diss scene, which – 
Can I just say, like, did you guys do this in middle school? Did you Definitely. like get a gang of people together and then trade insults like that? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know if I personally was in one of these like schoolyard scenes, but yes, that was a uh, nationwide phenomenon for sure. <laughs> the your snaps, mama joke. Yeah, they would sell books in Barnes and Noble of your mama jokes. They would call them snaps. Of course, you know that they sold books. <laughs> For your mama. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And this was where it came from, right? These yeah. early 90s black comedians. Yeah. So they are, he's in the middle of this, you know, your mama off with Pretty Ricky. And Pretty Ricky isn't going quietly into the night, right? Like he is going to give as good as Martin and they're yeah. going back and forth. And so we find out one of the reasons that he dislikes Pretty Ricky is that Pretty Ricky stole this girl from him. And he had just like finished dissing that girl for leaving him and going with Pretty Ricky. And he turns around and there's Pretty Ricky and off they go so he sort of round one kind of comes out uh martin kind of comes out on top with the you know my girlfriend's a model and we live together and i've got this great show and also here's a few zingers and then there's a moment where there the room is distracted because someone has walked in and the camera pans over and we see Gina in her sexy red dress with her bra coming out of the top, her makeup smeared all over her face. She's drawn on eyebrows, but she's only done the outline of them. So like we have the center of her eyebrows are empty. Yes. She's put on cat eyes, but they're, you know, like cat eye eyeliner, this but it's is wonky. Post lobotomy, homeless woman type uh look and she is doing like she's got this big smile and these huge eyes like she her the acting is oh i could like she was so good she has her eyes bugged out of her head she's got this sort of sideways smile because she still has the dental work so she can't really talk and her smile's sideways and her her lipstick is sideways to emphasize that and she's still drooling and you know like i said her straps are kind of half off and her bra's coming out of the top of her dress and she's like Mike, I love you here, you know, and like doing the, you know, she can't speak. And they're like, what is that? And Martin's yeah. like, oh, fans, you know, they follow me everywhere. Let me, let me handle this. Yeah. Martin disassociates from her. But yeah, uh, we talked before about how Tisha Campbell didn't get stuck with the boring straight man spouse part. And this ending, I mean, look, I'm not going to say I personally think this was the most hilarious scene in a TV show ever, but that she, they, they give her a long time with this and a, a lot of physical comedy. It's that same lack of vanity that the male comedians get to have that same crazy goofiness and rolling around and being crazy. And uh, yeah, it really sucks to hear that their real life relationship was bad because- Well, I guess it fell apart towards the end because this is several years before that happened. Yeah. And whatever it is, watching it, watching this- you really get the sense of true collaboration and that they really feel like equals and that she can be just as silly and crazy as him. And you understand why they're together and the whole thing uh, just really works. And you get the story thing of him sort of getting 
karmic payback for trying to use her as a status symbol and trying to make sure that she's all painted up because she ends up being, you know, this comical uh, absurdity. Right. She's a mess. She's got one heel that's broken. By the way, she's doing all of this in a dress and heels, right? So like when guys get to do this over the top, whatever, whatever, the only thing they really have to worry about is potentially splitting their pants, right? She's doing this and trying not to show her full hua because she's in a, a, you know, a tight skirt and heels. She's got hose on. She's slipping and sliding all over the place. She's falling out of her chair. She's, I mean, the face, like the face alone, she just bugs her eyes out. It's so funny. And, you know, at first Martin tries to distance himself and then he come, you know, comes over and is like, oh, we got to get you out of here, you know, nah, nah, nah. and his friends that, you know, we know from other episodes are there and they're helping. And then Pretty Ricky is like, hey, this doesn't look like uh, this is any old fan, like, and starts, now we get another round of the Your Mamas because Pretty Ricky has realized that this is the so-called model that Martin was talking about. And then Martin does the flip and he's like, you would be lucky to have a woman like this, you know? Yeah. And so you get the sort of, you know, the moral of the story is, uh, be yourself and don't, uh, you know, don't front, as they used to say, right? Uh, right. If you try to pull off this, uh, you know, whether you're whether you're pretending to be a garbage man or, you know, you're just trying to make your wife into some sort of idyllic creation, you know, you got to just uh, just be yourself and let the truth speak. All right. You want to move on to 30 Rock? 30 Rock. We are watching season three, episode Five. This is called Reunion, and this aired December 4th, 2008, a full four years after Mean Girls. Yeah, I was very much a 30 Rock viewer. I liked this show a lot. I remember at the time just thinking, like, she really found this unique combination. It was just so sort of canny to me that she had kind of plucked Tracy Morgan and she found that vibe of uh, Alec Baldwin on his SNL appearances and that combination there just wasn't quite anything like that. Yeah. And the initial treatment of this was Rachel Dratch was going to be um Jenna Maroney's character, oh. which I thought that was interesting and then they, you know, made changes and then Rachel Dratch ended up being, you know, a guest star several times. But yeah, you know, I made mention of Meat Girls because we get that sort of similar vibe because we're going back to high school. We get a little bit of that vibe in some of the throwback scenes that we see Liz in and when she's talking about her high school days. I also was a, a fan of 30 Rock. Really, you know, I, we both love SNL, huge fans of that since we were young. And then, of course, it was great to see, you know, Tina Fey bring this and and do exactly what you said with plucking the certain people and making this whole little universe. But it has taken on, the show has kind of taken on a life of its own, I feel like, in the years since, where people who are fans of 30 Rock, they have gone back and rewatched and rewatched, and they can quote things. And so where I'm like, oh, yeah, I really liked that show. I watched a lot of it. You know, I want to go to there and that kind of stuff. But I do not have the encyclopedic knowledge of all of the guest characters and funny sure. bits and long running jokes that so many people who love 30 Rock have. And yeah, I guess I'm in the same boat. What I would say now is that, you know, everything we said about the Andy Griffith show, you see the full opposite here, right? This is very much in the world of uh, urban 
professionals. We want to see the people behind the scenes at, at TV shows and stuff. We want to see what their lives are like. We want to see CEOs of big companies and stuff like that. Uh, life in the big city and also the pace of it, you know, and, and this, this was not a surprise. I, I remembered it being like this, but my God, if, if we were talking about the Andy Griffith show was three acts so it was three scenes three settings this is like within the first minute you've you've been to 20 different places you know they're doing those early 2000s cutaways that had been taken from the simpsons and family guy and were in everything there's a b c d e and f story going on all within the same world uh it's just it's very fast and dense and a lot going on and you can you can have an entire subplot happening in uh you know five lines of dialogue yeah. done spread out over two different cutaways and then and that's it and that's you know you don't have to you don't have to write deeply <laughs> you can write thin um speaking of writing this episode won an emmy for uh best writing yeah so the story of this episode is uh liz is the one invited to a reunion she's not inclined to go but Jack, Alec Baldwin's character, is down in the dumps. Uh, there's an ongoing story where he was supposed to be named the CEO, but the the retiring CEO decided not to retire. Rip Torn is the CEO, and he's been in a coma. And so he had told Jack right before he fell into a coma that he was going to let he was going to be his successor. So he was going to be CEO, and then he falls into a coma, having not told anyone else. So we get his daughter who's not very bright, um, who's been acting CEO while her father's been indisposed. And at the very beginning of this episode, Rip Torn wakes up and then tells Jack that he's going to stay on. He's had a vision while he was in his coma. He's going to stay on as CEO. So Jack, we get all the elation of him. Ah, oh, I'm going to be CEO. Hey, Lemon, you should take the CEO's jet. You should take the private jet to your reunion. You're amazing. Look at all you've done. You're so successful. Go show those yokels everything that you can because she's from outside of Philadelphia. And um, and then when he finds out he's not going to be CEO, she's like, well, I don't have to go then because I don't have the jet. And he's like, no, I've rented a jet. You're going. I'm going to tag along with you because I'm going to take the jet to Miami because I okay. need to get away. So that's his plan to go to Miami. So we have another case where the character on the show is genuinely successful and they want to go back and flaunt their success. and Or someone else wants them to go back so they can yeah. flaunt their success. And Liz has a certain perspective on herself that she was bullied in high school. Right. right? She, and that's sort of who her character is throughout the series. She's this kind of, you know, she's dumped on, you know, people make fun of her. She's the boss, but she can never really yeah, like she's get anything done. Nerd, so it's like, yeah, I've attained some success as an adult, but I was the kind of kid that you would make fun of when I was a kid. Right. And unlucky in love, you know, she's, ostensibly quite brilliant at what she does. She's running a TV show, but she just, you know, she needs Jack's mentorship. She's not, you know, she's like you said, a grown up nerd. She's just not 
able to kind of get her life together. That's sort of a running gag throughout the series. And so she has this idea of herself that she was that in high school too. She was this nerd. And we get a flashback scene where Liz is like looking into a microscope or a telescope or something in some class. And these, like, is it, was it like Kelsey something makes fun of her and she sort of mutters something under her breath and that's, you know, that's the end of it. So she, her story, she was bullied in high school. Right. So she has a similar motivation as Martin, you know, she's like, I'm gonna, I don't think she has a memo pad full of, of names for a payback list, but yeah, she's like, uh, you know, these people were mean to me and now, uh, you know, I'm going to at least make them sort of admire and envy me. So there's, like we said, a bunch of other stories happening right. uh, at so the Rockefeller Jack, Center. Yeah, Jack was going to drop her off and go to Miami, but they get snowed in. And so he's got to stay in wherever they are outside of Philadelphia. And then he decides he just can't bear sitting another in- dry county, so, just like uh, Andy Griffith. That's right. Another dry county. He's like, well, I can't bear staying at this hotel. So I'll go to the reunion because at least there's booze. Yeah. Um, I guess the reunion was the next town over or something. So they were able to have booze. Anyway, so he goes and shows up at the reunion and then gets mistaken for this beloved yeah, uh, high Larry school character. Larry Braverman. Yeah. Uh, and when, when Liz Lemon points out you're 12 years older than everyone here, he says, uh, what, I'm a Hollywood 40 or he something. He says rich 50 is the same as regular people's 38. Yeah, exactly. So because he's, Which is accurate. <laughs> yeah. Because he's a suave, rich guy, no one's going to notice that he's over a decade older than everyone else. And yeah, there is this great plot line where all these people just latch on to him. And it's like he is everything that Liz isn't. He's just sort of a man of the people and something about his sort of resignation, you know, not resignation literally from his job, but his sort of like just his feeling so defeated has freed him up to just be this carefree guy that gets along with everybody. Right. So he has this moment of realization that he doesn't want to be going back to the Andy Griffith show. He doesn't want to be the big fish in the big pond. He wants to be a regular Joe. And so taking on this character of Larry Braverman feels like he's able to do that. So he's like leaning into it. He's like, I'm a man of the people. This is where, this is what it's like, the simple life. This is what it's all about. But we find out, right? Within the first few minutes that Liz is at the reunion, she goes up to this Kelsey woman who had said something mean to her, was one of her bullies, ready to have it out and be like, hey, you were mean to me. And it's a total 180. Yeah. And this was the part of all these shows that I related to the most. We get the device of returning to the flashback, but showing it from a different point of view. And what we discover was that Liz was being a snob to them and uh, making them feel stupid. Right. Liz was the bully. Yeah. She was the one who every time anybody tried to be nice to her, she would hide behind some sort of mean quip or some joke. And what we saw in the original flashback was Liz Lemon mumbling something in the reverse flashback when we saw it from this other character's perspective. What she said was, I don't know, Kelsey, how about your mom's pill addiction? And the girl who had just been saying, hey, can I help you with your telescope? 
was being nice. And so Liz has this realization that everything that she did in high school, all of that stuff she thought she was like saying under her breath because Mm -hmm. she was so frustrated and thought everybody was bullying her was manufactured. And now her sole purpose at this reunion is to make everybody like her, to say, no, I'm not mean. I'm nice. I'm nice. Look. Yeah. And I would not go so far as to say that I thought I was bullied and I turned out to be the bully. But Liz Lemon says, I didn't think anyone was listening to me. I was a nobody. And I really related to that idea that if you weren't popular or cool in high school, if you were awkward, you didn't think that you could hurt anybody's feelings. And the idea that somebody could be hurt by uh, by something that you said or did was just like, what are you talking about? Like, I n- nobody cares what I think or what I said. And there were many cases when I look back on uh, the weird little skits that we made and uh, uh, one guy, you know, our, our first summer back from college said that he had a 4.0 grade point average and i said that like it must have been a clown college or something and he was like one of the cool popular guys in high school and i was just me so i was like this you know he couldn't possibly have his feelings hurt by me so the idea that thinking that because you were awkward or unpopular meant that uh, you you were always the victim and that you couldn't have ever been the perpetrator. You couldn't have ever done anything wrong. And then sort of having to contend with the fact that maybe you were actually kind of a dick too. That was absolutely something that I connected to. But that's so interesting. Like we don't realize, like we have this sense of self, right? When we're young and we don't, we don't think we can have an impact or we think we have more of an impact than we do. And we just don't have another sense of self. So anyway, I just, I found that super fascinating in that parallel. And then to go back to the episode, what Liz doesn't realize in her quest to make everybody like her, and it's not until the end that Jack says it to her, is that she hasn't changed. She still does all of those things, right? She still uses humor to deflect. She still says nasty things about people under her breath and has like is very judgy of others. And all for all of those reasons, she isn't able to be her fullest self. She's unlucky in love. She, yes, is successful in her career, but isn't, you know, respected for all these reasons. Yeah, she is who she is. You know, uh, it is those things about her that, you know, led her to, like you said, a relatively successful professional life where she did move to the big city and she writes a TV show and all of that. But her problems relating to people are real. And in a sense, we get the same lesson that we did in Martin. Uh, you got to be yourself and accept who you are and how your life turned out. And, you know, trying to trick people <laughs> is just never going to work. And so speaking of that, the Larry Braverman storyline comes to a head when Jack jumps on stage to save Liz Lemon from being carried, right? Because we have another one of these, you know, elected office things where somewhere, you know, oh, they they're be- doing superlatives. Okay. Yeah. But they've got her up on stage and she's going to have a bucket dumped on her, like in the movie Carrie and Jack jumps up and saves her. But then some woman in the audience says, Hey, Larry Braverman, 
I need you to meet your son. So he immediately goes, my name is Jack Donaghy. I'm not Larry Braverman. I have never contacted this woman and just immediately shuts the whole thing down. And they basically, in a sense, it's it's like the married with children thing where it's like, yeah, you know what? Screw all these people. We're on the same page. We like each other. Uh, let's get out of here. And they do. And they run off and she doesn't get blood dumped on her. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. What do we think? Looking back on it, uh, class reunions in TV sitcoms. Any final thoughts? So a couple of things. I liked that there was a lot of crossover between the Andy Griffith show and 30 Rock. I think you you can see the evolution of that trope from the beginning to the last episode that we watched in terms of the people and the ways that our society has changed and the ways that we look at nostalgia and the ways that we deal with storylines, like all of those things. You know, we went from, like you said, having the very clear three act structure, three sets and three conversations. And that was the episode to this over like unwieldy kind of like over exaggerated many things going on sensory overload and our attention spans right so to to track that and then also the way that we we had the hometowny folks being sort of the the unsung heroes of like or or not even or just the center right of that of that episode the first one and then in the last episode it was yeah we're better than all these people anyway so let's get the heck out of here so you got to see it from both perspectives and then the two in the middle were not i mean what one's chicago one's detroit but they were more suburban right they're more like that and they have that sort of feeling of that striving, striving to recapture youth, striving to um, show that you've made something of yourself in the intervening years, and then also realizing that it doesn't, like none of that really matters. You know, like what really matters is the day to day. Yeah. I think, like I said at the beginning, the class reunion is a really good trope. And maybe it's unfortunate that for the reasons we said, social media mostly We're not really, you know, we don't have this as much in life. Maybe we're not going to have it as much in TV shows and they need to find a new version of it. But it's just such a natural, organic way to, uh, particularly if you've got characters that you met as adults, to give them, you know, a little bit of backstory and to kind of flesh out, you know, literally where they came from and, uh, you know, to play on all of their little neuroses and anxieties and stuff. It just, it makes a lot of sense for this to be a story. And I think for my money, Martin is the best in terms of just like viewing experience because it does sort of fall in the middle. Uh, I was surprised at the extent to which 30 Rock, I still like it, but it is a little bit of an assault on the senses because there are so many jokes. It becomes, you know, like a joke factory where you just get these, you know, you you do get a lot of, of sameness and just, you just get a lot of everything. Martin, like we talked about, their relationship was a blast. The performances are really fun. And it was, it's sitcom-y in a fun way. You know, he gets a little bit too big, too big for his britches and he gets his comeuppance and, you know, we have a few laughs. 
Yeah. Well, and each of these has a, has a sort of, um, maybe not Andy Griffith so much, but the other three have a sort of sense of humor that's set in place in time. And I think because 30 Rock is the sense of humor that is the most recent in terms of sense of place and time, it's, it's the one that I feel like 10 years from now, if we did this same rewatch, I probably would love 30 Rock the most because it would give me that sense of remember when this was the style that we thought was so funny. Whereas right now it being so close to our current sense of humor, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's just another one that's like this. So I think because of the combination of bang up performances and that sense of nostalgia being sort of perfectly placed, that's why um, Martin hit so well. Like, I mean, I was... I was laughing during the credits and wanted to applaud at the end of that episode. Like, I just thought it was so great. And like you you said, with the caveat that like, it's not the greatest episode of TV, but it was just, it was really enjoyable in this, in this lineup. And then the other thing is the trope itself, right? Class reunions, all of the ones that we watched sort of did similar things with the, you know, the striving or the, you know, wanting to be more, wanting to prove themselves and and, and all of that. It seems to me that there are so many different ways that you could go. There are so many different stories to tell at a class reunion. Just look at After Party, the, you know, that show that is kind of like out now or the Tiffany Haddish it's show. On that, Apple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's on Apple. So it's every episode has a bit of the reunion and then a bit of the after party that was after the reunion. And a lot of those tropes are in this, you know, the striving and the wanting to rekindle. Well, the premise is a murder. So, yeah, you've got the rivalries and the uh, resentments. And so I'm excited to go and look at some of these other episodes. Like you said, we found like 30 episodes of different TV shows throughout history that have done this same thing. And the reason there's a wealth of that is because there's so there's so many storylines you could do. I mean, you could kick off an affair if it was more of a drama. You know, you could you could end a relationship. You know, you can do so many things with that. And um yeah, I yeah, and it's a real thing that happens in the world. It's right. something that people actually do. It's not some weird contrivance you have to make up. So what are we talking about next week? Next week we're talking about This Half is Mine. All of our episodes have to do with characters dividing the room in half. We're going to start off with I Love Lucy, 1951, Season 1, Episode 8, Men Are Messy. Moving ahead in time to 1966, The Adams Family, Season 2, Episode 17, Morticia and Gomez versus Fester and Grandmama. And then just a few months later, we'll take on The Munsters, Season 2, Episode 29, A House Divided. And we'll round it out with Nickelodeon's Hey Dude, Season 2, Episode 4, Bunkmate Battle. Yeah, a lot of old-timey stuff, uh, a lot of creepy and kooky uh, characters to contend with there. Uh, So yeah, that'll be next time, and until then, we will declare this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. 
It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 